Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio, talking about the problems people have with their work. Whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. Uh, this is Bobak, and I'm here with Abby and Alfred for our next uh, episode. We are covering literary representations of work, uh, focusing on the novel right now. But uh, yeah, Alfred. Yep, we're going to be focusing on the novel. Um, we're going to give a little bit of a background first on it, um, but we're going to focus on the novel, and then we're going to move in further episodes to other ways that. Um, images of work and ideas about work have been sort of consumed by a popular audience. So uh, before we begin, though, Bobak, can you tell us a little about how people consumed images and ideas about work? Right, yeah. I mean, I think um, looking back at the development of, of the novel, um, I think for us, focusing on the history of print media might make us make sense in terms of why work became a subject that novelists could write about. You know, if you think about printing, there's a good 300-year gap between the invention of the Gutenberg Press and the wide availability of uh, books. Uh, so it's only in the beginning of the 19th century that you have, you know, forms of distribution, you know, putting steam power to produce uh, printed text. Uh, and most importantly, for our purposes, a wide enough audience who could consume it. So literacy goes up, uh, and people who are m what we might call middle class or working class, basically the masses, can now consume the literature. So uh, novelists begin begin to be aware of that, uh, particularly in you know places like uh, France and the United States with the development of naturalism and realism. So, you know, one of the key examples we were talking about the other week was uh, Herman Melville's uh, Bartleby the Scrivener, which yeah. has the subtitle, A Story of Wall Street. The title character, Bartleby, is a copyist in a law firm. And what's interesting about that book is we, we both get the representation of the, the boss there, basically yeah. the lawyer who runs the place, who, who <coughs> does copies of these legal documents, mainly uh, corporate law, what we might call corporate law now. And and you have this this kind of half-starved guy Bartleby who makes this sort of existential claim like, I prefer not to. He's being asked to work and he's saying no, I'm not going to do and it. And he has no attitude about it. He's not like, yeah. how dare you? He's not angry or arrogant or anything. He's just no, I would prefer not to. Right. He's almost fully himself and sovereign. Like yeah. he he just. Yeah. And he's unfathomable. I think that's one of the things in the book, right? It's like yes, the, the, that's the right. boss trying to figure him out. Yep, exactly. Um, exactly. So he is a very existential character. Yeah. And that's 1840-something. Yeah. Um, there's another one that I thought of. So one of the other reasons we were going to talk about this was that there are certain tropes about in literature about work and in particular characters that have resonance today. Some of them even become parts of our, our vocabulary. So I was thinking about Scrooge. This oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, Ebenezer Scrooge, I don't know what your Christmas Carol's written a little bit later than yes. Bartleby, yeah, but yeah, not, yeah. you know, uh, this is the character. That, Scrooge is the quintessential worst boss ever. 
I mean, he's caricaturishly the absolute worst boss ever. He right. doesn't. He's miserly. We know that, but he's right. also cruel. He's yeah. also callous, and his employee Bob Cratchit is the nicest employee, the yeah. the warmest, yeah. most. He has no anger in his body, no matter how badly he's treated. He has a child who's dying. I mean, this is the best, nicest human being yeah. on the planet. And it takes an otherworldly, metaphysical, ghostly <laughs> engagement with death before Scrooge even considers bending. Right, right. And we use the word Scrooge, and everyone knows what the word Scrooge means. Yeah. And it has resonance. And, you know, what's funny is it's we, we like to think that that's a caricature. But, you know, if you work at Walmart... You don't get a lot of say in your schedule, and right. there are people. How many? We just had Black Friday. We had right. people working on Thanksgiving. They're actually exactly. calling that Gray Thursday. Oh wow! wow. Talk about yeah. how far yeah. are we from Scrooge? And I, I just like the um, the death sort of. It takes death to help so have someone understand. Yeah. Is um, this is bringing it to very modern, and then we'll go back a little yeah. bit. But you know, with all of the like sexual harassment stuff going on, and people are equating what's going on for these like men executives as death oh, um wow. like Interesting. losing their job you, do you want this is the equivalent of death <laughs> wow. and so it's wow. kind of like wow. that's just what made me think of that it's yeah. the equivalent of death <laughs> but yeah. isn't that weird i mean it to go to a historical uh, press uh, sociological thing Max Weber, right? He <laughs> divides up when he writes the Protestant ethic and the mm-hmm. spirit of yeah, capitalism, right? right? There's yeah. two classes of there are there's what he called the economic traditionalists. So this would be like the people, and I consider myself one. And he was really referring to the swarthy Mediterranean Catholics, <laughs> who were they just they work as a necessary evil, yeah. and you just work the minimum amount it takes to get what you need. Right. That's it. Right. Right. Whereas the Protestant ethic was that work was a reflection of your status in the eyes of God. That yeah, your right, salvation, right. if you were successful right. and entrepreneurial and you productive, right. that's right. a sign that you are among the saved. By the way, we're going to put a bibliography on the uh, mm-hmm. on the website of this. We're not doing a comprehensive... Yeah. Right, we should caveat that, right? right. We're not say that every 10 minutes. Yeah. This, yeah, is not every a 10 minutes. this is not everything <laughs> yeah. about work, and it's not right. a labor history, or it's not... Right, and it's not... You know, there are people who have done uh, anthologies on working-class literature uh, pretty comprehensively. You should check out Janet Zandi's book on this. Uh, so we are not doing that, and as Alfred said, we're not doing yeah. sort of a comprehensive history, so yeah. we're... we're um, selectively looking at um, novels that have interesting representations of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and also on that note, we're, we're looking at novels today, um, partly because it really starts it, historically, the consumption of images of work really kind of start in that place. Yeah. We, later episodes, we're going to move to film, which becomes a sort of next obvious place where the masses consume images mm-hmm. of work. Right. And we're going to talk about music and television. Right. So starting with foundational things. So um, I want to actually go back to something from 1908. So one of my favorite books, and I feel like it's a book that nobody reads and everybody should read. It's uh-huh. Jack London's The Iron Heel, mm-hmm. and he wrote it in 1908. Now, it's a dystopic, f- sort of dystopic future, except it's not like 1980 or something. He's looking at 1912. He's looking ahead just a few years. Oh, wow. It's prescient. But besides that, 
I mean, it's a socialist parrot. In a sense, it's a socialist parable. Um, he's explicit. This is a the, Ernest Everhart is the main character, and he's exp- he's heroic. I mean, he's he's almost caricaturishly ethical, mm-hmm. working. Lab- he represents all the best ideas at the time, 1908, of like good socialism. Um, but they explicitly name. They go after the oligarchy. They go after the plutocrats. They see the enemy as the right enemy. I think uh-huh. so. Is it? There's a, but yet, uh, so let me, I'm going to read a quote from one of the, a small quote from the, the woman who's the sort of narrator, the, 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 the narrator of the story, okay. um, about the oligarchy. And she said, they were taught and later in turn taught that what they were doing was right. They were the saviors of humanity. They as a class believed that they alone maintained civilization. Without them, anarchy would reign. They, in turn, obsessed by this cultivated fear, held the picture of anarchy before the eyes of the children that followed them. In short, they alone, by their unremitting toil and sacrifice, stood between weak humanity and the all-devouring beast. The point is that the strength of the oligarchy today lies in its satisfied conception of its own righteousness. Yesterday or the day before, the Republicans passed the... That that could be a broadcast, that could be a banner that could be sitting over Congress right now. Exactly. Wow. And this is 1908. (laughs) So I think that's... We need to go back to that. (laughs) <laughs> book, perhaps. Yeah. 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 Um, out of curiosity, mm-hmm. so who's the woman character? What's that? Her. Um. She's. She becomes story? his wife. Okay. Um. It basically is. This man is basically no real sort of history. Ernest Everhard, and he mm-hmm. sort of p- pops in. Uh, her father is an industrialist, okay. and her, or an uh, academic, okay. I should say. That's oh, an okay. interesting thing. Okay. There's an actual scathing look at academics, in particular, <laughs> not. Not the sort of humanities professors, academics, mm. but mm-hmm. the academics who think that they understand the working class. Oh, and wow. he yeah. has a yeah. sure, great sure. speech where he basically crit- criticizes them at a dinner table. So he's oh, he's sure. a guest. Mm. He's like a, they they sort of bring in this guest as a way of like, oh, let's try to understand the working class. And it turns out they assumed he was kind of you know he was just going to be some lunkhead. Um, right, right. But it turns out he's he's an existential hero. He's just ev- you know and. And he he turns things around on them all the time. Right. Their arguments are is just defeated one by one. Is this also around the time that um, sociology is emerging yeah, as, a, as this, a field? Like Franz Boas and all that stuff is, is clearly, going on at that time, right? Yeah, he's yeah. clearly picking out a thing that's happening culturally, and, yeah. and, and, and which is that there is this emphasis on understanding. Yeah. And it's not just working class. I mean, honestly, and this is going to be just a critique of sociology, but I mean, a yeah. lot of sociology was looking at the deviantness exactly. of oh, yeah. others. Yeah. Right. And that includes, of course, what's happening in 1908. Masses of immigrants are coming from oh, Europe. Yeah, there was and right. certain, definitely an ethnographic yeah. mm-hmm. component yeah. to it. Yeah. Certain immigrants are more favorable than others. So if you were Slavic, right. you were basically right. a, a wild, crazy, you know, whatever. Right. Um, Bohemian. Bohemian. You were literally. <laughs> right. the, well, again, and also, I mean, I, I think that we've all talked about this before, but the idea of examining the problem and through examining the so-called problem people poverty the problem is poor people so let's examine the poor people right right? so the working class instead of examining yeah and that's why i brought up that weber thing because it keeps coming back this idea that like the economic traditionalists who again tended to be catholics tended to be you know Mm -hmm. or 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 the Slavs in this case, like the, the, there's this judgment about people who are who don't see work as a noble thing, right? Right. right and right. I think that I mean I'll I'll go to the other, and we'll probably bring this up again, but perhaps what I think is the worst and most important, and yet the absolute worst literature 
novels that have existed in our history were Ayn Rand's books, The Fountainhead and Atlas mm -hmm. Shrugged. Right. And I am, I have had, I am one of the few people on the left, I think, who actually read both of them mm -hmm. in their entirety. And thank it's you for doing that because it's it saves yeah. the rest of us. We just listen to what you say about it's it, and then we don't have to. Read it's it. excruciating. <laughs> yeah. But I'll tell you what the key is. The reason why it works is that in order to, it, if if you believe basically one premise, the books are magic. Mm -hmm. If you believe that the world consists of productive, competent, ethical, strong, sincere mm -hmm. people who produce, who create the yeah. jobs created, if you believe yeah. that and that everybody else is essentially um, lazy, you know, right. everything right. else. If you believe that that's what exists in the world. Right. It's magic. The books, the books are magic because right. it shows all the philosophical aspects of how important that wow. is and how true that is. Yeah. And it's but. It's it's a novel, right? Atlas Shrugged is a novel, except right. This tax bill is a Randian. It's literally yeah. tax bill. it's yeah, it's yeah. they have been all, forget just Trump. This has been a trope since Reagan, mm -hmm. and I mean Alan Greenspan yeah. was yeah. A, was a, was a Randian was an actual part of her inner circle. Wow. I mean wow. Th that's this has had real effects, and it's all based on a mythical. It's a chimera. It's not a real thing. Right. Right. Those, right. They and uh, let me just point out something about Rand for anybody. So. Part of this episode, I wanted to just tear a new orifice into any fans of objectivism whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. So if you're listening right. and you're a fan, I will go right toe-to-toe -to -toe with you anytime <laughs> on this. Rand comes to America. So the story of Rand is simply, she's born in Russia. Her father, I believe he was a pharmacist, had his own business. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the revolution happens and things are nationalized, collectivized. And, and in her way of looking at it, her father lost everything he worked so hard for. Right. So right. She, comes, she comes to America. So, okay, uh, she's, you know, she's strong. She comes to America, and her narrative is that she, worked, she came to America, worked hard, and built this philosophy of strength and blah, 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 the self-interest. Well, when she comes to America, she's um, put up by family members. She's basically, yeah. Yeah. she gets a free ride until she gets on her feet. Right. So right. she got help. Um, later in life, she collected Social Security. She had no problem with, with that at all. So, uh, and Medicaid. Wow. So wow. she was a hypocrite, as were anybody who... And, and she, I would say bluntly, to end this part of the talk, <laughs> I reject every single notion that there are any, any, any honest, sincere industrialists, millionaires, oh, whatever right. you want to call them. None. Right. They all get right. by by cheating, fraud, lies, gaming the system. And that is not motivated self-interest. That is cowardice. Mm -hmm. yeah, that is wow. a fear wow. a fear of getting the retribution they deserve for being frauds. Wow. Wow. So yeah. anyway, that's, so we go from the iron heel where they actually point this out to yeah. their sort of opposite of the iron heel. Uh, okay. And it has okay. resonance. Right. right. They yeah, still, people exactly. still quote her stuff. I mean, interesting. Contrast. in the past few yeah. weeks, like they've been alluding to, yeah, to sure. this. Right. Oh, yeah. All right, maybe another, maybe something. Maybe we could shift to another work. Really, <laughs> sure. Um, maybe I'll turn to Theodore Dreiser. Yeah. yeah. Let's let's take a break first, and okay. then we'll come back. Sounds good. All right. This is Punching Out, a project of the Punching Out Collective, and we want to hear about the struggles you face as a worker. You can tell us your stories by sending an email to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, and we're on Twitter at punchingoutwayo. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Okay, uh, we're back, and, and we were just talking about uh, the muckraking period in, in American journalism and the novels that kind of came out of that period. 
Um, so Jack London, but one of his contemporaries, Theodore Dreiser, yep. is mm-hmm. is kind of a classic figure in in um, representations of working class people. And oh, yeah. So Dreiser's novel Sister Carrie is probably uh, an important what's, one. What's what's it about? So it was it was written in 1899. Uh, there was a it was published then, but it was censored, and then it was published again in 1900. And uh, Carrie Mieber um, moves from um, the countryside of the Midwest to Chicago, moves in with her sister, <laughs> works at a shoe factory, uh, and starts to become enamored of of all things clothing, and you know starts mm-hmm. purchasing clothing, and then falls in with this guy named Hurstwood. Um, and Hurstwood is a manager at a bar in Chicago. Um, they start having an affair. Hurstwood leaves his wife and family, mm-hmm. and they and he embezzles money from uh, from the bar, and they run off to New York City. And one of the really interesting things about this novel is that it not only shows Carrie's relative upward mobility, mm-hmm. it shows Hurstwood's downward mobility. That as a result of this, you know, and it's a sex scandal, you know, mm-hmm. the, as a result of this, he, he starts basically plummeting and becoming poorer and poorer. Mm-hmm. And towards the end of the novel, there's this amazing scene where he has, you know, he's, he's fairly hungry. He's, he's, he hasn't been able to find work. And he notices that they're looking for uh, train conductors in Brooklyn during a strike. Oh. And there's this confrontation between him and a policeman that's really fascinating mm. that gives us both the sense of sort of, you know, the cop as as a worker, but also Hurstwood. Yeah. Uh, and so here's, here's the passage. <laughs> Hurstwood had read that scores of applicants were applying at the office of the Brooklyn City Railroad Building and were being received. Once in Brooklyn, he could clearly see and feel that a strike was on. People showed it in their manner. He noted... I'm sorry. He noticed cold and even gloomy faces. Labor was having its little war. When he came near the office in question, he saw a few men standing about and some policemen. On the far corners were other men whom he took to be strikers, watching. He made his way into the heart of the small group, eyed by policemen and the men already there. One of the officers addressed him. What are you looking for? I want to see if I can get a place. The offices are up those steps, said the blue coat. His face was a very natural thing to contemplate. In his heart of hearts, he sympathized with the strikers and hated the scab. In his heart of hearts also, he felt the dignity and use of the police force, which commanded order. Of its true social significance, he never dreamed. His was not the mind for that. The two feelings blended in him, neutralized one another and him. He could have fought for this man as determinedly as for himself, and yet only so far as commanded. Strip him of his uniform, and he would have soon picked his side. So that's the passage. What fascinates me about that is it gets in the head of this this cop, or thinks it gets in the head of this cop, (laughs) and basically says, you know, here... Here, here's the epitome of the divide and conquer that that mm-hmm. the upper classes are, are you know, yeah. successful at getting this policeman and this so-called scab Hurstwood to not see eye to eye, yeah. uh, or at least for the cop to say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, protect these scabs because the bosses are telling me to do that. Right. But again, I, I think um, it, it's still sort of. Uh, 
it's representing them yeah. sociologically yeah. in yeah. that yeah. sense yeah. that you yeah. were describing. Yeah, and you know, interestingly, because we know the story of the police in the United States and everywhere, you know, the police were essentially a private force to protect the wealthy. Mm -hmm. And in this case, there's a transition because now that you have a working class, now that you have like labor unions and this yeah. sort of collective right. thing, the police, there's the roles shift a little bit too. Mm -hmm. The Pinkertons were, I mean, they were always strike busting. They were always union busting. They were always right. doing that. Right. But now it's just, it's become a little bit more of a state function, right? Like yeah. a little bit less oh, of an individual yeah. private tier thing, but more like, because you have a police force which is part in a sense municipal yeah, yeah, exactly. right yeah, yeah yeah then the wealthy the wealthy don't have to pay out of their own pocket to have the police right. force now the right. now the the rest of us we still today mm -hmm. pay for the police force and interestingly we our tax dollars for example right go the to workers getting busted the workers are the ones paying exactly for the cops so you're to paying come and bust. yeah you're <laughs> paying for the police <laughs> yeah. officer that's yeah. arresting you for striking right. because yeah. you're not getting enough money to live yeah. so um, right. but the police officer brings us to another really common trope in the novel in fact there's a genre of this which is about police officer and detective so abby yeah so like the um, detective novels and the trope of the private detective especially you find that in these novels it's normally the sort of interesting character isn't the cop that's working for the you know municipal police department yeah. on the beat right. or something um, but someone who for one reason or another is not part of that and um, is the, the private detective um, and so um, in The Big Sleep for example Marlowe just that you can a short description of him he he had a couple of years at college and some experience as an investigator for an insurance company and the district oh, wow. district attorney's office of Los Angeles County he was fired from the DA's office for insubordination mm -hmm. or as he put it talking back um, and the but the chief investigator is still a friend and a confidant. Wow. Um, and his office, they talk about his office, and it's modest, and he doesn't have a secretary. Yeah. He's all on his own. Wow. Um, and also, he <laughs> smokes and prefers camels. He sometimes prefers a pipe. He's good at chess. He likes li reading literature. <laughs> oh, wow. He's, yeah, he's, wow. he's like the, pre he's such a, there's such a caricature, right? Of, oh, yeah. he, of course, it's interesting. He always, he always sort of like talks back to his superiors, or he doesn't obey the rules. He, and, exactly. and yet, but he's more moral and yes. upright than the police force. Yeah. Often they they are they identify the corruption in a police force, and that's why they left the force, for yes. example. Uh -huh, but uh -huh. they're not they they're they're almost like when when John McCain uh, vetoed the Medicaid yeah. the, the, uh, the, uh, when he vetoed the uh, Affordable Care oh, Act. Sure. Yeah, 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 they, yeah. Everyone was like, "Good for him!" Like, no, he didn't think it went far enough. Right. Right. right, just right. like that detective doesn't yeah. think that the law is doing a good enough job in keeping the maverick. The, the, yeah, yeah, the maverick. Yeah, right. They're exactly. the maverick for the wrong reason yeah. right. because yeah. none of those detectives are actually fighting to change the system. Right, they just say, yeah. "Well, they're all corrupt. Yeah. I'm more moral and, and upright." Right. Well, and it's sort of taking an inter interpretation of the system as the ideal, so-called ideal version of it, which is the the good, you know, upholding the good of the society right, right. and that yeah, the police right. are the, the ones who are going to do that or the detectives who are, are the ones yeah. who are doing that. It's the, that insubordination detail yeah. is so interesting <laughs> because right? it really is about sort of um, here's someone who thinks for himself, right. you know, the rest of you uh, just fall in line. And that actually goes back, I think, to the origins of that genre with... Um, I think Poe is is credited he, right, as, right the you know, with the... Um, Murders on the Rue Morgue, but I think what happens with the hard-boiled detective yeah, type you're yeah. talking about is this shift from a kind of um, 
independent gentleman mm -hmm. intellect right. with, um, you know, Poe's uh, um, detective and then and Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. And then I th probably what happens is that these types of detective stories are printed in dime novels. Yeah. Yeah. So, you you know, they know that their reader now includes the working stiff. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and the working they, stiff, yeah. the working stiff, believes that they are doing moral things by working. Right. So, like, they're not they're not reading these dime novels to buck the system or to oppose the system. This is resonant because, like, I understand this. The cops are corrupt. Right. I'm, right. You know, like, right, it, right. it reinforces right. a, a I want to say it's a masculine view of of morality, which is that yeah. I am the singularly iconic person who's suffering because I know that everybody else is mm -hmm. corrupt right. and I do it my way. But I, yeah. what right. he does is not, you know, Raymond Chandler doesn't write books about helping a poor neighborhood, you know, get access right. to like, you know, food or anything. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. It's not sort of like it's not community. No, it's nothing. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's one of my questions for you, Abby. Yeah. You think it's, um, is it that, uh, he's an entrepreneur? I mean, is that kind of what uh, is being developed there or, yeah. or is it that he's really kind of an outsider or both? I, I think, think it's kind of both, you know, yeah. it's like the rugged individual list is, is okay, and right. like the, um, self, you know, there's the idea that the best thing is to not have a boss. That's kind of something oh, that crosses. Yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of true. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that almost <laughs> everyone could agree with that, you know. And yeah. so, like, self-employment, um, right. and also right. then on the like the moral aspect of it is that there's no sort of moral ambiguity because you're making your moral decisions based only on yourself, like your yeah. own moral system. Yeah. So that like right. it's easy to say like if I, you know. I'm violent with this person for whatever reason. I'm doing it for the better, for the greater good. Yeah. Um, there's no boss telling you you have to do yeah. it. It takes yeah. away that it's, ambiguity. It's frontier yeah. justice in a way, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and they see, and the, interestingly, because they see the world as this sort of frontier. Like you think about all those those novels in the night, you know, that that Western, you know, the, the Deadwood. There's a town that's yeah. lawless yeah. and there's a sheriff or there's one person yeah. who's moral, but he doesn't follow what the governor says or right. what he right. He creates his own, you know. But we believe I can this imagine a reason. Randian reading <coughs> of the detective because totally. it's sort of like the the uh, mm -hmm. the police who receive their funding from the government are incompetent. Absolutely. Yeah. So so the government version of policing sucks. Yeah. Whereas this private entrepreneur exactly. detective right. is you know the beacon of hope for everybody. And and exactly. these things are subtle, but they have they have resonance. People are reading. I mean, my God, people read all of the, uh, novels were massively consumed yeah. Yeah. between right. let's say like the 20s and 50s right where yeah. and and that is a subtle thing which is what you said Abby that sort yeah. of singular entrepreneur who's kind of not really part and and it points out the corruption of institutions but yet the corruptions of institutions are never the focus of the like exactly. they don't they don't change the system right right they've only sort of removed themselves from, from the system and on the periphery are sort yeah. of dealing yeah. with. And, yeah. and, and I, so I want to bring in a book. Just, well, we can go, I would love to go back to this, yeah. but it reminds me so much of, of one of my favorite books, and it's another thing that we use as a term, Catch-22. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole point of Catch-22 is that you, no matter what you do, the system has built in catches 
that will prevent you from ever be getting out of the loop. You gain no autonomy. Yeah. So it takes that idea of that broken system right. and turns it into a farce, into a par- uh, sort of, a, 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 it's an intensely, yeah. um, it's, it's funny. Mm-hmm. It's very funny. Right. But it also really points out, and you sit there and you think when you read it, like, it's funny, but... I kind of understand this. It's the absurdity. It's yeah. It, it, but it's, it's but it's absurd. it's a it's a natural consequence of having an overly bureaucratic system that everybody is tied to, and right. so that detective. Well, we'll is have to outside. Uh, yeah. um, circle that around to Kafka at some point. But yeah. Well, let's go. No, let's <laughs> just go. to preview something. Going well, let's go. Let's go talk about Kafka. So let's let's go. So this. Oh, you this idea, go to Kafka Yeah, because now? well, sure. because because we all everyone knows what a catch twenty two is, right? It's yeah. a sort of a loop that you can't get out of. In the book, the, the absurd. The, yeah. Yeah. In the book, the catch twenty two is is a way. So if you're if you're a, a pilot, and this is World War Two, you're a pilot. And you're told that you have to fly 40 missions. And these missions are bombing missions. I mean, you have your whole ethical sort of moral conscience going on. You have to do these bombing things. If you want to get out of that, well, if they want to keep you going. So you're supposed to do 40, but they want you to do more. If you refuse to do that on the grounds that you're feeling mental stress. Right. You're rejected because anybody who recognizes (laughs) the, the mental stress involved has to be rational. Right. Exactly. So you can't. Right. So you have no choice in the matter. Right. So let me re- right. let me read a little. Um, oh, let me read a and little. And if you happily kill all these people like a madman, you're, yeah. doesn't matter. You get to you do don't. it again. <laughs> so he's first time. The first time Yosarian, who's a yeah. great character, hears about this. So um, he's being told he's being told about this this catch, and he said, um, "Let's see." Yosarian looked at the doctor soberly and tried another approach. So he's talking to a doctor, and he's talking about a man named Orr. And he said, is Orr crazy? He sure is, Dr. Nika said. Can you ground him? I sure can, but first he has to ask me to. That's part of the rule. Then why doesn't he ask you to? Because he's crazy. He has to be crazy to keep flying combat missions after all the close calls he's had. Sure, I can ground him, but first he has to ask me to. That's all he has to do to be grounded? That's all. Let him ask me. And then you can ground him, Yosarian asked? No. Then I can't ground him. You mean there's a catch? Sure, there's a catch, Dr. Nika replied. Catch 22. Anyone who wants to get out of combat duty isn't really crazy. There was one catch, and that was catch 22, which specified that a concern for one's own safety in the face of dangers that were real and immediate was the process of a rational mind. Or was crazy and couldn't be grounded. All he had to do was ask, and as soon as he did, he would no longer be crazy and would have to fly more missions. Perfect. I mean, how do you get out of that? Yeah. So this is yeah. the sort of thing his his Yosarian's way of doing is sort of hovering in an indeterminate space. Yeah. Is right. he crazy or is he not crazy? Right, right. That's to me the labyrinthine process of bureaucracy. But mm-hmm. who who do we we have another term Kafka esque? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, there's a similar absurdity there. But yeah. with Kafka, it's um, you know he gets into the psychology of it through in the Metamorphosis. I mean, we tend to think of the trial mm-hmm. or in the penal colony as you know, synonymous with Kafkaesque, but really in the metamorphosis in terms of work and working class and and labor. At the very beginning of the novel, what we find out is that Gregor Samsa is a traveling salesman. Uh, And the description of of him as a traveling salesman is is fascinating. So I'm just going to read from the the very beginning. Um, This is just after he's woken up and realizes he's a vermin. What's happening to me, he thought. It was no dream. His room, a regular human room, only a little on the small side, lay quiet between four familiar walls. 
Over the table on which an unpacked line of fabric samples was all spread out, Samsa was a traveling salesman, hung the picture which he had recently cut out of a glossy magazine and lodged in a pretty little frame. Oh, God, he thought, what a grueling job I've picked. (laughs) Day in, day out, on the road, the upset of doing business is much worse than the actual business in the home office. And besides, I've got the torture of travel, worrying about changing trains, eating miserable food all hours, constantly seeing new faces, no relationships that last or get more intimate, to the devil with it all. This getting up so early, he thought, makes anyone a complete idiot. Human (laughs) beings have to have their sleep. Other traveling salesmen live like harem women. For instance, when I go back to the hotel before lunch to write up the business I've done, these gentlemen are just having breakfast. That's all I'd have to try with my boss. I'd be fired on the spot. (laughs) Anyway, who knows if that wouldn't be a very good thing for me. If I didn't hold back for my parents' sake, I would have quite uh, long ago, I would have marched up to the boss and spoken my piece from the bottom of my heart. He would have fallen off his desk. It is funny, too, the way he sits on the desk and talks down from the heights to the employees. (laughs) Once I've gotten the money together to pay off my parents' debt to him, that will probably take another five or six years. Then I'm going to make the big break. But for the time being, I'd better get up since my train leaves at five. (laughs) Amazing that his parents owe money to his boss. You know, I owe my soul to the company store kind of thing. And and it's this it's not a catch 22, but it's this labyrinthine sort of he's in this vicious circle that he Mm -hmm. can't get out. Um, So another book that this remind you of and then um, we're gonna take a break. I want to bring this up quickly, though, is the, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit which was written by Sloan Wilson in the, I don't know, the late 50s, 55. Um, and basically, it's where we get all of the images of Mad Men. Just to, to give you a, an example of it, the main character was part of that generation of and men. sorry, you mean Mad Men, like Mad the men, show? I'm, yes, yeah. Mad Men, the show. Okay. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, even we the main character. We were just talking about Kafka, so Mad Men yeah. could yeah. be yeah. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, too, Kafka. Well, Kafka, see, I think Kafka at his time it represents a rejection. of Like, he recognizes the bureaucracy, and it drives him insane. It drives him to this, yeah. like, whereas... Yeah. The man in the gray flannel suit is the guy comes back from World War II. He, I mean, literally, a few years earlier, he was in the trenches. He was shooting people. He was getting bombed. I mean, it was death and gore. Mm-hmm. And, and he comes to work. And, of course, they hired a lot of people in the 50s, a lot of these men, because they were responsible. Yeah. It's a good American thing. We hire them. And they all work in offices. Mm-hmm. And the man in the gray flannel suit is a sort of Sloan Wilson, sort of very drab kind of look at this. Mm-hmm. But the main character goes from being someone who had that experience, to giving up, to essentially going, he's an ethical person, and he's just beaten down by all of the lack of ethics right. in that business world. Right. And, and and so there's a little thing he says when he comes out of, you know, he's talking, he was thinking about basic, about his experience in the war, and he said, you know, now that he's at this job, he said, it is necessary to forget all that everyone, all, I'm sorry, it is necessary to forget all, all of that, i.e. the stuff in the war, and everything it led to, Tom thought. It is as necessary to forget it now as it was to learn it in the first place. They ought to begin wars with a course in basic training and end them with a course in basic forgetting. Wow. The trick is to learn to believe that it's a disconnected world, a lunatic world, where what is true now was not true then, where thou shalt not kill, and the fact that one has killed a great many men mean nothing, absolutely nothing, for now is the time to raise legitimate children and make money and dress properly and be kind to one's wife and admire one's boss and learn not to worry and think of oneself as what? 
That makes no difference, he thought. I'm just a man, a man in a gray flannel suit. I must keep my suit neatly pressed like anyone else, for I am a very respectable young man. And so his his version of Kafka is like, this is it. Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm 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 in. I, I yeah. there's nothing to do. Right. It's what I'm right. supposed to do. He doesn't go. He no he internalizes out. it. Right. But again, uh, to go back to Mad Men. Not, yeah. I mean, we'll talk about that in a future episode probably. But you know, right. Don Draper came back from Korea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean. Different, but the point is, this is, is a generation of men. His boss, Roger right. Sterling, came out of World War II. This is right. a, and and they had to go from insanity, mm-hmm. bureaucratic insanity, right. to calm bureaucratic insanity, yeah. Yeah. where there's no violence. It's right. So right. anyway, let's go take a break, and we'll come back in a moment and continue. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. 104.3 FM. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. All right, we're back. Um, one of the things that we, um, we've we noticed already is the fact that uh, a predominant literature, you know, the, the sort of predominant author in American literature, particularly in the late 19th and early 20th and mid-century, was the white male. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't that there weren't women novelists, because there were. Um, Not as many. So we're going to talk a little bit more about gender in this regard. So, Abby. Yeah, well, so, and just a little bit more about that. I think it's so much so that it... uh, define When you think about work and what work looks like in literature you kind of think about these things that we've been talking about, like sort of office jobs and, and um, typically like masculine and... Um, Careers. Car- yeah, co- what, what is a career? But that is, yeah, exactly. Um, and so I just, this, uh, in The Bean Trees by Barbara Kingsolver, it's not a major theme of the book, but the way that work pops up is pretty interesting. And so the character, um, Taylor... She talks in the beginning of the book about her very first job and sort of how she got it and what she was able to use it to do. Um, and it's, I think, the the trope of leaving a small town. Sister Carrie kind of has yeah. a similar thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting a job as a means to an end, which is maybe just leaving even yeah. the town or right. going somewhere right. different. So um, here I'll read a little bit of this. Um, so there's a new teacher at the school. And this, she's talking about him. Uh, so not that I was moony over him, at least no more than the standard of the day, which was plain to see from the walls of the girl's bathroom. Uh, this is not what I mean, but he changed my life, there is no doubt. He did this by getting me a job. I had never done anything more interesting for a living than to help Mama with the forepay, ironing on Sundays, and look after the brats of the people she cleaned for, or pick bugs off somebody's bean vines for a penny apiece. But this was a real job at the Pittman County Hospital, which was one of the most important and cleanest places for about 100 miles. Mr. Walter had a wife, Linda, whose existence was ignored by at least the female portion of the high school, but who was nevertheless nevertheless alive and well, and she was in fact one of the head nurses. She asked Hughes Walter, this is the teacher, if there was some kid in his classes that could do odd jobs down there after school and on Saturdays, and after graduation, maybe it could work out to be a full-time thing. And he put the question to us just like that. And so she ends up asking him if, she, if he'll um, give her the job. 
I kept that job. I stayed there over five and a half years and counted more platelets than you could think about. A person might think I didn't do much else with all that time other than keeping Mama entertained and often on dating Sparky Pike, who most people considered to be a high-class catch because he had a steady job as a gas meter man. Until I got fed up with hearing who laid out in their backyards by their meters wearing what or nothing but what in the summertime. But I had a plan. In our high school days, the general idea of fun had been to paint class of 75 on the Watertown Tower or maybe tie some farmer's goat up there on Halloween. But now I had serious intentions. In my first few years at Pittman County House Hospital, I was able to help Mama out with the rent and the bills and still managed to save, save up a couple hundred dollars. What does she do? She buys a car uh-huh. and leaves. Uh, and leaves. Oh, yeah, wow. exactly. Yeah. Um, and then so throughout the novel, then her main intention is never to get a career or never to, you know, find great jobs but it's just to get out and live and the jobs are sort of an accessory to that yeah and and she doesn't seem to presume that this is going to be the case whereas i think in every book that we've talked about the sort of the the protagonist the male protagonist it's well uh, yeah i got out of war i got a job i I got out of this i you know like like jobs are handed to us none of the people we talked about at least are struggling to find work right right. yeah exactly well um i you know this reminds me of another area we haven't talked about which is race and ethnicity Mm -hmm. and and work as it relates to that and you know the fact that this nation's political economy was based on slavery we we, we're not covering this but i would imagine that slave narratives are another really fascinating way to think about labor um and um that moment (laughs) in um uh frederick Douglass's narrative where where he he's learning to write and and he says that the pen could fit in the the um, crevices in his feet because of, of how hard he had worked, something like mm-hmm. that. Somebody's going to correct me, yeah. Uh, yeah. and I'll be grateful for that, but yeah. that just strikes me as something to remember. But another um, uh, you know, important um, source of, of literature on, on work is from the Chicano and Chicana mm-hmm. uh, tradition. Um, and I'd, I'd like to cover something from that that's mm-hmm. a little more recent. Uh, Elena Maria Viramontes, Uh, This is from 1995, and it's called Under the Feet of Jesus, is the novel. And it's about a young girl named Estrella. She's, you know, it's a coming-of-age narrative, and she's working um, in California with her family. They're moving around a lot. And the passage I wanted to read has a lot to do with um, not just the effects of work during the workday, but how work affects people throughout, you know, Mm, after they've uh, punched out basically. <laughs> um, and so here's, here's the passage. Day after day, when the last row of tomatoes had been picked and the sun was low, Estrella walked down the road to meet Maxine, who waited with a scrolled-up comic book. She dragged her shoes across the softened soil, her back like boiled muscle, her water jug empty and smudged with her fingerprints. The fragrance of tomatoes lingered on her fingers, her hair, her pillow, into the next morning and throughout the day until it became a thick smell that no longer simply lingered but stuck in her nose like paste. Estrella would wave to Maxine and Maxine would wave back. Estrella would walk toward her, a pair of trousers under her dress and an oversized unbuttoned long-sleeved shirt which would fly open and bend around her body. They headed for the irrigation ditch and halted near the uh, walk bridge. By then, their throats were dry and sore, and swallowing meant a painful raking. 
Estrella had heard through the grapevine about the water and knew Big Mac, the foreman, lied about the pesticides not spilling into the ditch. But the water seemed clear and cool and irresistible on such a hot day. So just a fascinating passage where, you know, the, this worker's whole life from where to get water yeah. that's free of pesticides, yeah. in this case not, right. you know, how the, the, her whole body, you know, viscerally kind of is infused with the work. And there's, you know, these, yeah. these uh, sort of poignant attempts to, to have some break from that with this friend Maxine in the comic book. It's just that it's a brilliant novel. So yeah, you, you know, you, you, you're sort of, we've, we've kind of connected something here when you mentioned the slave narratives, for example, and this, and we talked about Kafka and we talked about all these mm -hmm. and catch 22. And, and I have a theory about this and I've always sort of believed this, but it takes a lot of violence to keep us working. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think inherently the notion of working for someone else who is profiting from our labor mm -hmm. is not right with us. That we, it, something doesn't sit well. Yeah, and different kinds of that kind of that coercion of sorts, um, and where it bleeds into, to, to what extent it bleeds into the entire and into our whole lives or the sort of our humanity changes depending on what kind of like what kind of the nature of the job is. Like I, I was. Um, Thinking about Bastard out of Cal out of Carolina, um, oh, yeah. and she uh, Annie is the name of the mother I think, and she works at the um, at, a, at a diner, and she's a single mother, and so she's working at the diner, and um, that's where then she meets this man, and he ends up you know being abusive and stuff, and but it's like this trap because living in a small place that's the only place mm -hmm. that she can really get work but she keeps going there but when she's going there then she's exposed to these sort of dangerous uh, elements and yeah. um but there's no way to get out of it like it's back it's to the catch-22 it is yeah. and and i always think what novels besides speculative or science fiction novels or you know the utopian future novels which there aren't that many that are really utopian where do we see images of work that we that are uplifting that we actually mm -hmm. think oh like I don't feel like I've ever read a book where I was thinking about the worker in the book and saying, oh, right." I mean, right. I was envious maybe that they had a job yeah. that I would have liked. Yeah. But nobody's yeah. sort of, you know, and how do, so what it's, is... It's usually artists or craftsmen or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh let me, yeah. or, the, or right. the other thing we had talked about when we were planning this episode was the fact that so many novels are written by novelists who are professional writers. Oh, yeah. And right, so they don't, right. I mean, I'm sorry, look. They don't have real jobs. I'm sorry. Well, and then there's uh, that whole not a job. <laughs> uh, genre of um, ac the academic yeah. novel yeah. about you know uh, usually usually uh, dysfunctional English departments. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Ish Ishmael Reed wrote a great novel called Japanese by Spring. So Ishmael Reed's an African American author, one of my favorite authors, and he wrote a book. He he's been at Berkeley. This is a true thing. He was a professor at Berkeley, but he had no graduate. He didn't have the graduate credentials to ever become full professor, even oh, though he yeah. is a legendary author, right. internationally renowned, just one of the best writers ever. Mumbo Jumbo may be the greatest book ever written, and and he couldn't get. He could not get tenure. He couldn't get. Um, uh, he couldn't get full professorship. Oh, whatever. Right. So he always he always rebelled against that. And he always hated that idea. Yeah. But anyway, Japanese right. by Spring is um, a novel about uh, basically uh, an African American professor who's told that he has that if he becomes Japanese, oh. he'll get he'll get professorship. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, I mean, wow. Reed plays yeah. with a lot of this stuff, but yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. And the academic there are that's a funny academic. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Often they're not. I think there's a little boring. Well, well, yeah. You know, one of the biggest ones is is uh, pretty funny. Um, uh, Richard Russo. Why am I blanking on the title? 
Um, You'll have yeah, to. Yeah, we'll come back to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've been reading uh, Javier Marias. Um, it's a book called All Souls, mm-hmm. and it's about his time as an academic. Yeah. And he's a young academic in Oxford, and he's like, it's just, it's, right. it's, it's, an inter- it's well written, but it's just not. It, interesting, it doesn't feel like work. You know why? There's no real threat of violence. Academia is one of the few jobs where it doesn't feel like it's forced in the same way that like other you're not trapped now now Bobak may disagree (laughs) well there's also there are like different kinds of pay too so like um i'm also yeah but you know you get a grant um and you have a grant for an entire year so in that period of time uh it doesn't really matter what you do you have this money yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, this is not for in yeah. all cases, but you know, like a travel grant or something where a writer goes and gets to be able to do what they want. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but so going back to the idea of the the detective, I'm yeah. really onto this. Yeah. But um, like Miss Marple in Agatha Christie novels mm-hmm. has is wealthy of her own regard or has money of her own regard. Yes, she's never right. t- described <laughs> as being wealthy, but just she's not she does not have to work for sure. money. Yeah. Um, and so what she does is detect. She's an amateur detective. It's work. Uh, other people might do it, and it would be work. But it's the trappings of what it is yeah. that makes it sort of. It's like a hobby. It's great. Right. It, right. <laughs> I hate that. Right. See, that's, that's the kind well, of stuff that I go. God, I, I mean, want I th- that. I think <laughs> yeah, some right. of those novels, uh, you know, function at strictly the mythical right. plane. So there isn't even an attempt to, at realism. So it's sort of about you know, uh, this. This happy kingdom that's thrown into turmoil by a murder, yeah, right, and yeah. this heroic figure comes and sets things right. True, yeah. you know? or or the exaggeration of that to me, which is one of the worst authors on the planet, is Dan Brown's work, <laughs> The Da Vinci oh. Code, Inferno, yeah. Right. Yeah. Angels and Demons. It's all, sure. it's all, it's very, it's garbagey literature in that, but it is. I mean, Robert he's Langdon, a scholar, he's right? the perfect, the, the, he's got the, the greatest job in the world. He character. gets to travel all around the world yeah. and decipher things, yeah. and he looks at symbols. It's, it's, again, that trope of what you were saying of all along. Right. There's this, this detective kind of person who happens to be singular, very mm-hmm. iconic, very intellectual. Right. They all play right. chess. They all solve yeah. puzzles. Right. They all do this thing, and, right. and, and that's just this trope. I don't know if it's and real. I, I'm, yeah. I'm remembering the Richard Russo okay. novel, Straight Man. Okay. Um, okay. And uh, it it's very funny, but it, it also does... I mean, Russo does a nice job of, of describing a secondary character who's the department secretary. Um, and And she's... Probably a better writer than any of the faculty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are those kinds of things. But, you know, the, mm-hmm. f- the funny thing about that, the title itself, Straight Man, I think indicates uh, one element of that tradition. If you go back to David Lodge, I think the title of his book, well, he's got a number of uh, academic books, but Nice Work, mm-hmm. uh, as in Nice Work, if you can get it, yeah. uh, kind of idea. Mm-hmm. And and all the way back to Amos's um, Lucky Jim, it's always these men in these academic positions, and often they feel beleaguered by postmodernists, <laughs> feminists. Every you know, yeah. so it's the, it's 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 funny. I mean, what makes it funny is it's for a non-academic yeah. reader who can laugh at oh, those crazy feminists who actually want rights for women, yeah. huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that the, the interesting thing to me is that that as generations pass. Like right there is the clash of sort of modernist and postmodernist, right? The academic yeah, in right. a modernist sense and right. the academic in the postmodern. Sure. But 
we're already the modernists are dying. Like yeah. they're, 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 at some point, it's only you're going to have all the postmodernists in tenured positions of lofty thing, and then the rest, whatever's next, is going to be challenging that. Right. And right. in fact, no. Again, I'm going to consider you, Bobak, in the postmodern, even though you might sure. disagree. But um, you are are a stodgy old person compared to your students. Definitely. And, right. <laughs> right. And your students, and like you, you know, they will find the things that you and your postmodern colleagues are still unable to really grasp in the way that they do and that's part of the so this will be i think there'll be a new genre of that which i'm interested to see Um, but but onto the subject of books i wanted to bring up another book um because i think it it ties together work the sort of entrapment but also in a metafictional way the assault Mm -hmm. that we've witnessed on books in general yeah fahrenheit 451 Mm -hmm. by ray bradbury Many, I mean, it's a very popular book. It, most people have read it. Every high school student's probably read right. it in America. Um, and, you know, the story is pretty, you know, Guy Montag's The Fireman, except the fireman set fire to books. Right, right. Um, and, uh, you know, the, and, and of course, it un, as it unfolds, interesting, I always found the book interesting. So, of course, as you can predict, if you haven't read the book, you know, I don't want to give away, but spoilers, um, he finds this a problem, Yeah, burning these books. Mm-hmm. Right. But he doesn't start off the book really with, like, a, a moral questioning about it like yeah. he just he's the working guy he's just working he does what he does right mm-hmm. like it takes a lot to get him to sort of uncover this and discover and he's sort of he's hesitant all throughout he's still kind of questioning this thing but the discussion of what yeah. books do and why they're being burned they're inflammatory they're in, they so are, a fireman yeah. has to put out that fire they are <laughs> they are they rep but they do they represent but interest but interestingly the fireman is an institutional position that is there mm-hmm. specifically to prevent people having the ability to escape from that loop in other words like education knowledge books fiction whatever it is gives people a way of seeing through the violent bureaucratic structure and so the firemen have to really end this thing so i think that's you know in a way that's sort of an exaggeration but look it's to me i find a parallel in efforts to squash unions Mm -hmm. if Mm -hmm. people got together and recognized the collective power they had whether it's graduate students whether it's Mm -hmm. um, plumbers Mm -hmm. whatever school teachers like the, the collective power is really important and Every effort is made institutionally to thwart that possibility. Mm. And so in a sense, like union busting to me is burning. It's the same thing. Mm. Yeah. So the distinction between, you know, a job and work and an occupation is kind of an interesting one that shows up differently. So in the book Sweet Bitter by Stephanie Dandler, which came out, I think it was 2016, so it's a very recent one. Um, It's about this character who works in a restaurant in New York City. And so again, back to the sweet uh, sister Carrie, (laughs) (laughs) moving to the city and finding Mm. work. And uh, so she's 22 years old. And this is how, this is close to the very beginning of the book. I don't know what it is exactly being a server. It's a job, certainly, but not exclusively. There's a transparency to it, an occupation stripped of the usual ambitions. One doesn't move up or down. One waits. You are a waiter. Mm -hmm. It is fast money, loose, slippery bills that inflate and disappear over the course of an evening. It can be a means to those with concrete ends and unwavering vision. I grasped most of that easily enough when I was hired at the restaurant at 22. Some of it was a draw, the money, the sense of safety that came from having a place to wait. 
What I didn't see was that the time had severe brackets around it. Within those brackets, nothing else existed. Outside of them, all you could remember was the blur of a momentary madness. 90% of us wouldn't even put it on a resume. We might mention it as a tossed-off reference to our moral rigor, a badge of a certain kind of misery, like enduring earthquakes or spending time in the army. It was so finite. Oh, my God. That is... I uh, worked wow. seven years in New York restaurants. Yeah. That is an absolutely appropriate, totally apt. That last line in particular, I, there's, I worked at a restaurant. It was a chain in mm -hmm. New York. And if you meet anybody... It was Dallas BBQ, by the way. Okay. If you meet anybody who worked at the Q at any point in history, you see... It's like being in the war. Like, wait, you worked at the Q? Which restaurant? Oh, 65th. Oh, my God. Like, you, you want a hug. <laughs> yeah. Stranger. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> what, a, what a good... I, like, very good description yeah yeah i really like that and she talks nicely about the like confusion what exactly is it and it's transparent yeah, it's and it's yeah and the, the yeah. thing that she said about not remembering any of it yeah. like it's yeah. so true you don't you just are in such the present moment right it's so stressful it right. is one of the most it's stressful all, yeah, jobs. the way she describes it it's almost a, a social function that happens yeah. to be paid Rather yeah. than oh, a yeah. job right. that yeah. has social implications. It's really nice. And in the in the industry too, there are people who are career mm -hmm. servers. Yeah. And and, yeah. and I always and I mean I'm not being judgy, but I sound like I'm being judgy. I've always found that a little weird. Mm -hmm. But then I also, you know, in a way, it's kind of like working in a factory. Mm -hmm. You don't have yeah. to ascribe meaning to it. Right. Exactly. It could literally right. just be your source well, of income. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Wow. Cool. All right. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.